Bookstack with Richard Aldous. Welcome back to the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Don't forget to check our website for all the latest commentary and analysis. And it's where you can find details of our new membership model. Simply go to AmericanPurpose.com forward slash join. Coming up on the show today, Michael Mandelbaum, Christian A. Herter, Professor Emeritus of American Foreign Policy at the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies and author of the new book, The Four Ages of American Foreign Policy, Weak Power, Great Power, Superpower, Hyperpower. Michael, welcome to Bookstuck. Thank you. Delighted to be with you and your audience. Congratulations on the book. So why four ages of American foreign policy? Well, American foreign policy is, by now, a long-running show. I cover 250 years, and there are some continuities over those 250 years that I discuss in the book, but there are changes, and the most important changes have to do with America's relative power in the world. Remember that power is relative. And the steady increase in American power in comparison with the power of other countries has cast the United States successively in four different roles in the international order. From 1765 to 1865, the United States was a weak power and its main concern was defending its independence while expanding across the North American continent. From 1865 to 1945, the United States was one of several great powers in the international system and engaged in the two activities that are characteristic of all great powers. It cooperated with, but also competed with the other great powers, and it carved out a sphere of influence for itself, as great powers tend to do, the American sphere of influence encompassing Central America and the Western part of the Pacific Ocean. Incidentally, during this time, the United States became a formal empire annexing the Philippines, but compared with the empires of the great powers of Europe, the American empire was modest, short-lived, occurred relatively late in history, and was really of almost no importance to the United States. So the United States was an imperial power for a while, but not what not much of one. From 1945 to 1990 comes what I call the third age of American foreign policy. And in that age, the United States was one of two superpowers. And as a superpower, it competed with the other superpower, the Soviet Union, in military, political, and economic terms all around the world. The end of the Cold War with the triumph of the American-led coalition led to the fourth era, the fourth age of American foreign policy, which ran from 1990 to 2015. And that I call the age of the American hyperpower. I take the term hyperpower from the French foreign minister, Hubert Védrine, who called the United States in this period a hyperpuissance. Uh, the United States was a hyperpower in the sense that it faced no serious security challenges and had no serious rivals around the world. That 
period ended in 2015, and that's where the book ends. We are now in a fifth yet-to-be-defined era of American foreign policy whose contours are still taking shape. I mean, you say at the beginning that a theme that unites these four ages can be simply stated that it's expansion and ascent. You also said there that uh, that the United States has this kind of elements of being an imperial power. Uh, I, I wondered, you know, how is the United States really different? How is this not just simply another empire, another imperial power? Uh, a very good question. As I know, in the four ages of American foreign policy, the United States is different from other imperial powers in at least four ways. And these are differences of degree, not differences of kind. First, I take an empire to involve direct control and governance of peoples who are different and who didn't volunteer for this status. And in that sense, as I noted, the United States did have an empire for a while, but it came late, it was short-lived, it was small, and it was half-hearted. So if you ranked all the great imperial powers of the modern era for the extent of their domain and the importance of their imperial possessions, the United States would be at the bottom, far below Britain and France, not to mention Spain and Portugal. So that's one way in which the United States is different from the great imperial powers. Then the American foreign policy of the 250 years that I cover differs in degree from the foreign policies of other countries, including the most powerful ones, in three ways. The United States, I say in the book, has conducted a foreign policy that has been unusually ideological, unusually economic and unusually democratic. Let me say briefly what I mean by all three. By unusually ideological, I mean that more than most countries, the United States has endeavored to use its foreign policy to foster its own domestic political values beyond its border. And above all, democracy within countries and uh, peace among them. To be sure, the United States is not the only country that has ever done this. Great Britain pursued such a policy in the 19th century. Western Europe is committed to this kind of foreign policy today. But the United States has been the outstanding example of an ideological foreign policy of this kind. As for an economic foreign policy, by that I mean that more than other countries, the United States has attempted to use economic instruments to achieve political goals. Until the 20th century, the United States used trade as a way to achieve political goals. And this goes all the way back to the revolution. New England merchants boycotted British goods in an effort to get the British merchants who exported them to put pressure on his majesty's government to remove the taxes on the colonials to which the Americans objected. And in a few cases, it succeeded. So this is a recurrent theme. And in the 20th century, the United States began using the export of capital in a way uh, to try to achieve political goals. Well, third, the United States has conducted an unusually democratic foreign policy in that the public 
has tended to have relatively greater influence on what the United States did abroad than has been the case in other countries. The great powers of Europe, of course, traditionally had foreign policies that were dominated by monarchs and aristocrats. The United States had neither, and that left room for the public to have an enlarged impact on foreign policy and the opportunities for public influence on American foreign policy were all the greater because of the structure of the American federal government, which provided multiple avenues for exerting influence. The great departments of the federal government, that is the State Department, the Treasury Department, and the Defense Department, previously called the War Department, the White House, the presidency, which in the 20th century and indeed in the 19th tended to be the center of foreign policy, but also uh, the Congress, the press. So American foreign policy, more than the foreign policies of other countries, has been influenced by the public, by public opinion, by interest groups, by lobbying, and by the public mood. And in that way, as well as in the other ways, the United States has differed from other countries, including the great imperial powers. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it, how the United States, and you show this time and again in the book, has always wanted to present itself uh, as being different from the other powers. I wonder, to to what extent uh, is this a question of rhetoric? For example, if we think of someone like Woodrow Wilson, uh, who wanted freedom of the seas in his 14 points, but this is as much about challenging Britain's maritime empire as it is about any kind of idealism. So sometimes there is a, a way in which the realism and the kind of practical hard hard-headed realpolitik is presented in this very idealistic, almost moralistic way? Uh, The United States has always had two approaches to foreign policy. One is sometimes called the realist approach, which puts center, which puts power and the defense of the national interest at the center. And at the same time, it has had this moralist, ideological approach. Woodrow Wilson brought the ideological approach to the center of American foreign policy and world affairs after World War I, but there were antecedents to Wilson and Wilsonianism in the earlier periods of American history. Thomas Jefferson was really a Wilsonian. When the two have clashed, when they have pointed to different policies, realism and power politics and national interest has usually won the day. But Wilsonianism, idealism, has been a real part of American foreign policy. Now, sometimes what Americans depict and as idealism and believe is idealistic has also worked to the American advantage. <laughs> but it's also true that these ideas have been genuinely held, that Americans have believed that these ideals are genuinely good for the world, not just for the United States. They have had some impact, although not usually a decisive impact on foreign policy, and they have been adopted by other countries. The foreign policy of the European Union, such as it is, is very much a Wilsonian foreign policy. So I think it's fair to say that there has been some hypocrisy in American foreign policy, or at least some self-interest 
masquerading as idealism, but that does not mean that there has not been genuine idealism. There has been. And you point out in the book how actually America's strong religious tradition has really contributed to the to that ideological and idealistic character of American foreign policy. Yes, America is a very religious country. People are more observant in the United States than in any other advanced industrial society. There's more church going, more belief in the United States. And that, especially the Protestant tradition, has, I think, influenced American foreign policy. Part of the American Protestant tradition is evangelical, bringing the good word to, to those who don't have it. And American foreign policy and American idealism, especially in the 20th century, especially in the fourth age of American foreign policy, the era of maximal American strength, has been evangelical. We can see this in a small way in the Peace Corps during the Kennedy administration. We can see it in a larger way in the efforts at democracy promotion during the 1990s and the early 2000s. Unfortunately, these efforts did not work out very well. And I explain in the four ages of American foreign policy why they came a cropper. But nonetheless, they, they are genuinely American and they have, I believe, their roots in the American religious tradition. I might also point out that the quintessential idealist the person who lent his name to the idealist tradition, Woodrow Wilson, was what they call a son of the manse. He was the son of a Presbyterian minister. Uh, he was very religious. He prayed every day. And although he didn't, he didn't specifically inject his faith into his policies, I, there seems to me to be no doubt that they uh, affected the way he saw the world and the proposals that he made. There was no, it was no accident that uh, the term for the charter of the League of Nations, the international organization that he wanted to found and did found, but that the United States did not join, the term he used was not a charter, it was a more religious term, a covenant. I mean, it is also interesting that you mentioned public opinion there, that, that very often presidents who have that moralistic quality to their foreign policy, Wilson is an example that you mentioned, uh, Carter would be another, that very often public opinion does end up turning against those presidents for precisely that reason, that their policy uh, is seen as too moralistic, perhaps too naive as well. When a president expresses the ideological strain in American foreign policy, but fails in the power politics department, he is invariably discredited. And that is what happened with Carter. Wilson failed uh, for slightly different reasons. The United States rejected the League of Nations. The, the United States Senate refused to pass it partly because of political malpractice by Woodrow Wilson. He had suffered a severe stroke, and it's not clear that he was really himself during his final months in office, but also because he never clarified an important point in the League covenant. The, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, which took up the League of Nations, 
wanted to know whether the uh, whether Article 10 of the League Charter, which said that when there is aggression, the League members will band together will, and stop it, was binding on the United States. <clears throat> and that was important because the Constitution gives the Congress the sole power to declare war. So the question was, would the United States be obliged to go to war without congressional authorization? And Wilson never satisfactorily answered that question. He said there would be a moral obligation, but not a legal obligation, to which several senators said, well, what's the difference? He didn't explain it. So uh, Wilson failed because he couldn't answer some fundamental questions and for another reason. The League of Nations was an effort to keep the United States deeply involved in world and especially European affairs in the wake of World War I. And Americans quickly grew tired of that involvement so that only a few years after the war ended, a majority of Americans regarded American participation in the war as having been a mistake. There just wasn't a political consensus in favor of the kind of role that Woodrow Wilson envisioned. That consensus came only after another bloody war, World War II, when in its wake, the United States did adopt a much more forthcoming internationalist position. Uh, you mentioned it there, that sometimes because the, the powers of the president as the commander in chief are so strong that we actually forget the influence that Congress has on the making of American foreign policy, not just the uh, the formal elements of uh, turning down treaties or having the, the opportunity to declare war, but actually in the making of uh, the compromises involved in the making of policy itself. Well, uh... A, a renowned constitutional expert said of the power over foreign policy that the Constitution confers that it is an invitation to struggle. There's always been, since the beginning, a kind of tug of war between the Congress and the executive branch over control of foreign policy. In the 20th century, especially with the two world wars and then the nuclear age, the balance shifted sharply toward the president so that Harry Truman waged war in Korea without a formal declaration of war. Uh, John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson waged war in Vietnam without a formal declaration of war, although Johnson claimed that the so-called Gulf of Tonkin resolution of 1964 was the functional equivalent of a declaration of war, but it wasn't really. So there is this tension and the pendulum has moved back and forth. In the 19th century, Congress was relatively more powerful. Congress played a role in driving the United States into war in the War of 1812. And Congress played an important role throughout the 19th century because there were moments when presidents wished to annex certain territories to the United States, and the Congress ruled it out. There were several occasions when the United States wanted to make Cuba a part of, or at least presidents wanted to make Cuba a part of the United States or the island of Santo Domingo. But there was too much opposition in the Congress for that to happen. It's also the case that the most important territorial acquisition of the 19th century, 
the Louisiana Purchase, was railroaded through by Thomas Jefferson. That's an irony because Jefferson was the outstanding opponent of excessive executive power in the 19th century. He feared the imposition of tyranny. He was against executive power, but he also was in favor of expanding the country. And when he got the opportunity to purchase cheaply the Louisiana territory and make it part of the United States, he didn't hesitate to forge ahead. I guess that's another good example of what we were talking about earlier, the 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 reality of power versus the language. After all, Jefferson <laughs> describes this as an empire of liberty, uh, which uh, I think anybody could agree is something of a contradiction in terms. Well, he did use that term, but I don't think he meant empire in quite the way that it came to be understood at the end of the 19th century, that is, of ruling over foreign peoples against their will. Jefferson was not particularly for that. He was in favor of expanding as far as possible because he believed that the United States could only be true to itself if it remained a republic of yeoman farmers. And therefore, the United States needed as much land as possible to support a largely, if not exclusively, agricultural population. As I note in the four ages of American foreign policy, at the beginning of the 19th century, the United States, having won its independence, having become an independent country, had to decide what kind of country it wanted to become. And there were two visions that were offered. There was that of Thomas Jefferson, which was an agrarian one, and there was that of Alexander Hamilton, who was George Washington's chief aide and secretary of the treasury, which was the more urban and industrial one. Uh, Hamilton, although he'd fought bravely in the American Revolution, was something of an Anglophile and thought that the United States ought to try to emulate Great Britain. Jefferson was an Anglophobe who wanted nothing to do with Great Britain, and he thought the United States should not be at all. Well, Jeff Jefferson won in the short term. Hamilton was killed in a duel with Aaron Burr and never held an office after uh, he was Secretary of the Treasury, whereas Thomas Jefferson was president for two terms and his disciples were president for the next 16. But the United States has turned out to be a much more Hamiltonian than Jeffersonian country. And were that not the case, the United States could never have become a great power, let alone a superpower or a hyperpower. So we owe a great deal to Alexander Hamilton, even though he is not as famous, he never became president, his face is not on Mount Rushmore, unlike his great rival, Thomas Jefferson. One of the things that is really fascinating about this very timely study is that in that that fourth age that you describe as, as the 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 age of the hyperpower, there was a kind of a historical amnesia that went on about American foreign policy and the study of American foreign policy. Mm -hmm. We, you know, particularly in the in in the public realm, it seems to me that uh, things like the war in Ukraine seem to have woken people up. For example, we had your Johns Hopkins colleague Mary Sorotti on earlier in the year, who put the current crisis in the context of decisions that were made in the 1990s. There does seem to be a recognition that studying history in this kind of way is actually essential in policymaking right now. 
Well, I think that the study of history, and I'm sure you as a distinguished historian would agree, is always essential, not just for exercising statesmanship, but also for being an informed citizen. And the patterns of American foreign policy that I derive and trace in the four ages of American foreign policy are relevant today. I will give an example, the war in Ukraine. In a country as deeply divided and polarized as the United States is now, it may seem odd that there has been, up to now, very considerable consensus in favor of supporting the Ukrainians. It's not been unanimous, it's not guaranteed to last, but thus far there's been a pretty robust consensus. How to explain that? Well, I think we can explain it with resort to and with reference to the kind of history that I've described in the four ages of American foreign policy. Recall that I've said that the United States has had two traditions in its foreign policy. The realist power politics tradition, which I associate with Theodore Roosevelt, and the ideological idealist tradition, which was given its most prominent articulation by Woodrow Wilson. When those two traditions have conflicted over a particular issue, policy has invariably been weakened. And we can see that just recently with President Biden's approach to Saudi Arabia. He denounced Saudi Arabia because of its human rights violations, and it undoubtedly has violated human rights. On the other hand, American interests require a good relationship with Saudi Arabia, and so President Biden was forced to abandon his idealistic, his ideological approach to Saudi Arabia and adopt a realist power politics oriented approach and visit Saudi Arabia very recently. Well, with the war in Ukraine, as with the Cold War, incidentally, and as with World War II, those two traditions, those two impulses are in harmony. In World War II, in the Cold War, and in assisting Ukraine, the United States was both defending its interests and promoting its values. It was both checking an aggressive, dangerous power and protecting democracies. Ukraine is not a perfect democracy, but it's certainly far more democratic than Putin's Russia is. And it's that convergence, that congruence, that I think helps to explain so far the very impressive American support for Ukraine. I should add one other point. Another reason that Americans seem to be close to unanimous in their support for Ukraine is that Americans are not fighting themselves. No American blood is being shed. America, the American public has demanded that the American government cease and assist wars in Vietnam, in Iraq, and in Afghanistan, when it decided that the price had become too high. And the price was invariably not economic, but in American lives. The United States abandoned its war in Vietnam, ceased its war in Iraq, pulled out of Afghanistan because that's what the public wanted. And the public wanted the cessation of the American role not because it had turned against the goals for which the United States was fighting. It still endorsed those goals, but it concluded 
that the price that the United States was paying was too high. Well, as long as the United States does not send troops to Ukraine, and I think the United States and NATO will not do so for a variety of reasons, as long as that's the case, I think there is a chance of sustaining a fairly robust con uh, consensus in favor of assisting Ukraine in opposing Russian aggression. And what about the the lead up to that war? You quote George F. Kennan in the book, uh, The Godfather of Containment, calling NATO expansion the most fateful error of American foreign policy in the entire post-Cold War era. Uh, you seem to agree with that yourself. You argue that NATO expansion persuaded Russians that American promises were not to be believed and that the American government would seek to take advantage of Russian weakness. So, I mean, is is this a, is this an example of where you're trying to apply uh, history to thinking about problems in real time? Uh, I, th that is certainly my position. During the period of NATO expansion, I spent a lot of time opposing it. I believe that I was right then, and I still believe that I was right for the 1990s, because it set the Russian elite and Russian public opinion against the United States. Did so needlessly for no particular gain, because Russia was not threatening its neighbors at the time. It did so contrary to American promises not to do so. Uh, it did so despite the fact that we had what I regarded as a very good new security order in place in the 1990s. And it did so when Russia was led by Boris Yeltsin, who was trying, with mixed success to be sure, but who was trying to make Russia a democracy. So my view is that NATO expansion, if it didn't exactly create Putin, it certainly gave Putin the opportunity to conduct the kind of foreign policy that he has conducted since 2014, or really since 2007. Putin has used aggressive nationalism as a way of generating popularity for himself. He has portrayed these wars against Georgia, against Ukraine in 2014, and against Ukraine today as ways of defending Russia against an aggressive, predatory West. The charge that the West is out to conquer or subvert Russia is false. It's not true. He's lying because he must know it's true. But it resonates with the Russian public and gives him political cover to what he is doing. Without NATO expansion, I don't think history would have unfolded that way. All that said, however, we are in a different era now. We're in a different circumstance. And that means two things from my personal view. One is I do not believe that Putin went to war on February 24th, 2022, because he thought that Ukraine was about to join NATO. He surely knew that that wasn't true. If he was in any doubt, Emmanuel Macron, the president of France, would have told him that. And Macron has a veto. Second, Despite the fact that I believe that NATO expansion was unnecessary and counterproductive in the 1990s, I do believe that it is important to resist Russia today. So despite my deep reservations about, indeed, opposition to NATO expansion in the 1990s, I believe that supporting Ukraine is the correct policy today.
And uh, finally, Michael, we haven't really talked about the the rise of China, but as the the subtitle of the book uh, says explicitly, this covers the United States as a weak power, then a great power, then a superpower, and ultimately as the world's hyperpower. Uh, you talked about uh, that we've embarked on that fifth age of American foreign policy now. Uh, I guess the question that is is being asked is whether that fifth age is now of the United States as a declining power. Uh, what's your what's your view on where where the United States will stand, say, in 30, 40, 50 years time? Well, my crystal ball doesn't extend that far. And <laughs> I did not discuss the fifth age of American foreign policy, which is why uh, I get again, to ask you on a podcast like yes, this. <laughs> it's as the title suggests, because uh, I think uh, history, the history of the future is very difficult to write. <laughs> uh, I will say this, that this era looks something like the Cold War era, the, the third era of American foreign policy, the era of the, super, the American superpower, with three important differences. First, there is not one great adversary, but three regional adversaries, Russia in Europe, China in East Asia, Iran in the Middle East. Second, this is not an ideological contest in the way that the Cold War was. Russia and China do not have fully developed political and economic systems that they are seeking to foster around the world. The Islamic Republic of Iran is an ideological power, uh, but it, it, uh, its ideology is only relevant to the Islamic world and, and really doesn't seem to have much appeal to the majority, to the Sunni majority of the Islamic world. And third, and most important, the American adversary during the Cold War, the Soviet Union, was autarkic. There was virtually no economic contact between the West and the Eastern Bloc. Well, now Russia is a minor factor in the global economy, but China is a major one. And that complicates opposition and indeed resistance to China. China seems to be the major adversary. Uh, there is uh, a sense in some quarters that the United States is in decline. Uh, let me make two points about that, or let me make three points. First, I simply don't know. We don't know. Second, the United States has one enormous strength that Russia, China, and Iran do not have. It has an alliance system. It has a way of multiplying its power. Alliances are very difficult to manage, as Americans have found since the beginning of the Cold War. I think it was Churchill who said that an alliance is an exercise in mutual recrimination. Nonetheless, it is a source of strength. The second or third point to be made here is that whatever problems the United States has, the other countries have serious problems as well. Russia is certainly a declining power economically, and China's economic growth looks to be plateauing. And China's government and Russia's government do not have democratic legitimacy, and in the long run, that makes a difference. So in answer to your question, I think we can see some of the elements of the fifth age of American foreign policy coming into focus, but we can see by no means all of them and we simply don't know what the future will bring. 
So the book is The Four Ages of American Foreign Policy, Weak Power, Great Power, Superpower, Hyperpower. It's written by my guest, Michael Mandelbaum, and published by Oxford University Press. Uh, but for now, Michael, it's always a pleasure. Congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you, Richard. It was a pleasure to be with you. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. Do join us again next time. But for now, this is me, Richard Alder, saying thanks for listening.